Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. All right, you guys. Well, um, welcome to uh, this continuation of our series, Finding the Life of Your Love. And uh, man, it's been a lot of fun. And so for those of you who are just joining us, wanted to kind of catch you up a little bit. Uh, we understand and recognize that there are all sorts of different kinds of relationships um, and that every person in this room has a different kind of idea of what relationships uh, look like, both their strengths, their weaknesses. And so in no way can we cover everything, but we wanted to cover a few things. And we opened up the series talking about one thing we can agree with is that the end goal of every relationship needs to be love. And not the kind of love that the world prescribes, but the kind of love that the Bible describes through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is a self-giving. And through that, we identified that the greatest enemy of love is self-centeredness. And if everyone in this room could determine that the greatest problem in every relationship is our own self-centeredness, then we're in a good place to let those relationships flourish. Uh, We began the last two weeks talking specifically about marriage and how we made sure to let you know that that, those marriage talks were not just for married people, they're for us as the bride of Christ. For marriage, although um, it's a gift for human flourishing, ultimately it is a signpost that Jesus has promised himself to us and that we are going to be reunited. This week we're going to be taking a different turn and we're going to be talking about singleness. And uh, really excited uh, about, about today. This has been a really formative week for me through studying and conversations um, and have specifically just felt my eyes opened uh, to God's heart when it comes to those who are single. So um, I'm excited to, to share that with you guys. I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up, I believe, with a healthy theology of singleness. Matter of fact, I remember growing up, and if you grew up in kind of the Christian subculture, I understand a lot of you guys did not, but if you did, do you guys remember the, the books Left Behind? Anyone? Do you guys remember those? Probably collecting dust on your grandma's shelf somewhere right now. Um, but for a while, it was like this trend where these, these couple of authors wrote um, these really well-written, poor theology books on uh, the end of time and the rapture and Armageddon. And I remember being early on in high school, laying in bed at night, just engrossed in this story of just like, of uh, these people who some of them were just raptured out and everyone else trying to figure out what's going on. And I remember shutting the book, laying in my bed, looking at my ceiling and just, just praying, said, dear God, please don't rapture me till after I get married. <laughs> True story. And at 16, it probably was like, I want to have sex before you take me to heaven. It's like, let's just be honest. Like, just please... If there's any way you could tarry for like a few more years. (laughs) And I think within that adolescent prayer, um, there's there's something deeper of in my own kind of heart and soul that I had viewed marriage as some sort of pinnacle achievement in my life that, oh, that's when I have arrived. And being married for 13 years, a marriage that I I love, being married to a woman that I love, um, I have realized that God's heart for humanity, although it involves marriage, is not contingent on marriage. And that his idea of human flourishing, of blessing and fulfillment is not constrained 
to the covenant of marriage. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What is God's heart for singleness? And um, it's been, again, like a very enlightening week. There's just some things that I've discovered. Here's some stats that are going to be on your screen. For the first time in history, 25%, um, at least of our nation, will have never been married in their lifetime. It's a quarter of our population. Uh, there, another statistic is that based on the 2015 census, 45% of our nation over the age of 18 is single which means including children, more than half of our nation are single. And I think that, not that that should have been that surprising to me, but I just started in an ecclesiastical kind of sense and like thinking about church, I'm like, this is most of the people we desire to reach, are single people. And because the world is shifting in this direction, it's vital for us to have a healthy theology on singleness. What does God think about what is his view on, what is his heart towards singleness. Within that 45%, 63% of those have never been married um, that are over 18. 23% have been divorced and 13% have been widowed. And as I was researching, I came across this article in CNN called, There's Never Been a Better Time to Be Single. I wanna read you an excerpt from Bella DePaulo's article. She says, Marriage is a healthy estate, British physician William Farr wrote in 1858. And one of the first studies to conclude that married people were better off than single counterparts. The single individual is more, is more likely to be wrecked on his voyage than the lives joined in matrimony, end quote. The ensuing decades have done little to dissuade social scientists of their certainty that single people were doing themselves a disservice until now. In 2017, it was that conviction that got wrecked. She continues her article laying out a ton of statistical research, a ton of anthropological study of just saying this is why we know single, there's never been a better time to be single. And there's some things in the article that were very true and enlightening and made a lot of sense. At the end of the article, though, the predominant case that she made for this statement, there's never been a better time to be single, was essentially built on the case of selfishness. You can do whatever you want. And that's true. That there has never been more resource available to single people. There's never been more opportunities, even with our understanding of sexuality, you no longer need marriage to do that, according to the kind of the, the narrative of our culture. And she concludes that, and although there are some interesting and, and insightful things within that, I, I, I left that article saddened because I thought that was an incredibly low view of singleness. You see, Jesus has a much higher vision for singleness. Jesus thinks incredibly high of those who are single, so much so he was single. Did you think about this? When he thought about coming to the earth, the incarnate God in flesh, fully human, that he embodied a single person. Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, was himself single. And, and through what we're gonna be talking about today, God has a very high view of singleness, but it's not just because you get to do what you want. It's because through singleness, God's kingdom advances in a way that is unique and, 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 and rapid 
in a way that if we can understand this as the church, that we will, my, my hope is that we walk away today not just with a healthier and more biblical view of singleness, but an inspiration in our hearts that actually those who follow Jesus within singleness are to lead the church in certain elements. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. This is the one place that Jesus talks about singleness. And if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might be like, when did Jesus ever talk about singleness? Um, and he does it a little bit incognito, but if we read this, uh, we'll find that Jesus not only speaks about singleness, but speaks about it very highly. Matthew 19, starting in verse 11, uh, Jesus is concluding a teaching on marriage and divorce uh, that would have been revolutionary for his listeners, and he ends it with this. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And in verse 12, he turns the page and he says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, let's just pause for a moment because not everyone might understand what a eunuch is. Uh, a eunuch was a unique role that was played in ancient cultures where um, normally a male would be castrated for the purpose of his role being a protective presence around women normally in um, kind of a royal authority role. So let's say there was a king and wanted to protect his, his queen or his wives or concubines. He would have um, eunuchs that would kind of guard and protect them and attend to them. But he made sure that there would never be any funny business going on. And within kind of this ancient royal culture, the ancient religious cultures, including Judaism, um, viewed eunuchs uh, very poorly because in their worldview, if you, you were blessed by God if you had children, if you were married, and this is why you see so much turmoil from women in the Old Testament and New Testament who did not bear children because they viewed this as attached to God's blessing. And so you can imagine eunuchs would have been, in their eyes, viewed incredibly low. And Jesus is talking to a highly religious, patriarchal audience that would have viewed eunuchs incredibly poorly. And Jesus says something shocking. First, he addresses that there are those who've been born eunuchs, meaning that there are those people who were born not within the kind of the gender roles that we would kind of assume. There are those who have been made eunuchs. There's those people who are, play that role within royal society. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. That's a nod to singleness. This is Jesus. Jesus chose to live like a eunuch, meaning he would not fulfill his sexual drives or desires. He would not get married for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he ends it with saying, the one who can accept this should accept it. It's not like, hey, this happens to some people. He says, this is a good thing. Those who choose to live like this, like me, for the sake of the kingdom of God, if you can accept this, this is a high calling, which is not the first time that we see the, the heart of God bent towards those who do not find themselves in a kind of what you, we would assume as just kind of a, a, kind of a normal marriage kind of relationship. And again, this is again, this is kind of revolutionary for the ancient kind of spiritual belief system. Seven hundred years before this, 
God speaks to the prophet Isaiah in a time when the nation of Israel is coming back to their ruined city and temple, and as they're coming back out of being captured to their, to their city, some of the people coming back with them are foreigners. Some of those who are coming back with them have been eunuchs who've converted to Judaism, and as they get back to the temple, they start saying like, hey, you guys don't know this, but in the temple, you don't belong here. There's a court of the Gentiles, eunuchs, you're not even allowed to go in that. And they made sure that you weren't allowed in the temple. And all of a sudden, God prophesies through Isaiah, and he says this in Isaiah 56, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. Listen to how shocking this would have been to his audience. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Talk about dignity and value. And talk about how uncomfortable this would have made the the people's kind of normal worldview of the day. Wait a minute, you're telling me that eunuchs, people who will never have children, who will never be married, not only are allowed in the temple, but within the temple walls, there's a memorial and inheritance better than sons and daughters? that their inheritance will last forever. And you begin to start seeing when Jesus is talking about those who live like eunuchs, he has, a, he has a frame of reference from Isaiah, which he quotes all the time of understanding. Hey, listen, let me tell you a little bit about how you think wrongly about people who are living this way. This is how God views singleness. This is how God views those people who maybe even within the church have felt outside or ostracized. Uh, it gets better. Uh, Turn right over to Acts chapter eight. Uh, this is a story about uh, Philip, who's a disciple of Jesus, meeting up with a high-ranking eunuch from the queen of Ethiopia. And I want you to, within this context, I want you to listen what happens here. Acts eight, verse, thir- verse 26. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official. This is in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man has gone to Jerusalem to worship, so we know that he is he's a converted Jew. He's going to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. By the way, he's not allowed in the temple. No matter how high-ranking he is within Ethiopia, he's not allowed in. He's a eunuch. He's not Jew. But he's going there to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Let's stop again. You weren't allowed to pick up the book of Isaiah at Barnes & Noble. You weren't allowed to own a scroll of scripture unless you were the temple or maybe an affluent synagogue. So this guy must have had major money to be able to have his own scroll of Isaiah with him on his chariot, right? On his like ancient Kindle or something like that. He's like sitting there reading this. And so again, if you're reading this, you're like, well, this guy's important. He's on a chariot. He has his own book of Isaiah that he's reading. He's in charge of of all the treasury of Ethiopia. 
the spirit of the Lord told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Uh, He's quoting, or he's reading at this time, Isaiah 53, which is one of the most prominent messianic uh, prophecies that we have in all of scripture. And he's reading this, and he starts asking, like, Philip's like, do you know what you're reading about? And he's like, no. And he's like, how would I know that someone explains it to me? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. By the way, the Ethiopian church is one of the most, uh, the most ancient Christian uh, churches in the entire world because of this conversion. But something here is is. Fascinating that I never put together because he's reading Isaiah 53. If you were to time yourself reading Isaiah 53 all the way till you got to Isaiah 56, it would take you a few minutes, which means either in that chariot ride or sometime soon after that, this eunuch would have came across the words To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I mean, this eunuch just came from Jerusalem and as much power and affluence as he had was not able to enter to the temple and on his way back to Ethiopia reads about Jesus and immediately soon after that is starting to read about this same Jesus he was reading about has a heart for him that not only is he welcomed into the temple that he has an inheritance better than sons and daughters. This is how Jesus interacts with this, this single eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia. And I, and I hope you're starting to see that this is not coincidence, that God is deliberately trying to reveal through his scriptures what he thinks about those who aren't married, may never be married, who were married and have been divorced or widowed. God has a specific vision for them and it is one of dignity and value and it should be that for the church. This isn't the only place that talks about singleness in scripture. Like we said, Jesus, as a single person, speaks highly of singleness. But Paul also was single, and he talks about singleness with, with a high vision as well. Um, there's some speculation that Paul may have been married based on his status as a Pharisee, and also based on the bitterness in which he talks about marriage sometimes. Um, there may be a little bit of like just you know some saltiness there. But uh, we, we can't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is Paul has a very high view 
of, of singleness, which is ultimately the view of the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write this. So we're gonna turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. And he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Powerful powerful vision for singleness, so much so that he not only dignifies those who are single, but he actually says, this is how everyone should live. I'm not trying to restrict you. I'm not saying don't be married or don't get married, but I'm saying those who are single and passionately follow Jesus have an insight for all of us to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I realize I'm standing up here as a married man with kids, and some of you guys who are single might just be like, who are you? Who, who do you know? And I just want to say that is a valid question, so much so that I spent a few hours this week on the phone with people in my life who are single, who I tremendously respect, who follow Jesus and have a vibrant faith and has done so much within their singleness. I've talked to people who are single who desire to be married and don't know why they're not. I've talked to people who um, are single and feel called to be single. I've talked to people who have been divorced and have felt the scars of that and now live um, as a single person, but it feels foreign. I've talked to people who've lost their spouse and became a widow. And I said, I'm like, what, what is that like for you following Jesus? And I, and I want to approach these next few points that these are not coming out of some ideas that I have. These are coming out of some deep conversations with people I dearly respect and ultimately out of what I believe the heart of scripture is for singleness. So as I lay these before you, I wanna just let you know these are things that I've drawn from, again, books, articles, podcasts, but ultimately conversations and even more ultimately that than the word of God. So John Tyson, who's a pastor in Manhattan, recently on a, pre- on a podcast uh, touched on four things that I thought summarized a really accurate biblical vision for singleness. So I'm just gonna give you these four things and kind of dress them up a little bit differently here. But here are the four things for a biblical vision of singleness. Number one, is Christ-centered singleness means that you have an attentiveness in your devotion. Number two, there's an absence of distractions, not all distractions, but according to Paul, the distractions of a spouse. <laughs> Number three, an abandon in your mission, a sense of I'll go anywhere, do anything, send me. Number four, there's a unique awareness of self that people who are single can have in the presence of God. Let's kind of walk through each one of these and how... Again, this, this understanding of this vision of singleness can not only help you, but the church grow in our depth with the Lord. So number four, I'm sorry, number four. Let's just skip to the bottom. Number one, attentiveness in devotion. 
First Corinthians 7.35 says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. The, one of the most paramount and profound things that singles can offer, not only to their own souls, but to the church, is this sense of undivided devotion. It is attending to the presence of God. And I want to make it very clear. Single people are not less busy. They have, I've talked to single people, like, I, like people assume, like, oh, I'm single, I have all this time on my hands. No, no, they're oftentimes very successful and driven, have a lot of things going on. But I will say, in my own walk with Jesus, the moments that I just get to sit down in the quiet of my own home and open my Bible are slim to none, right? There's someone asking for milk or a chicken nugget getting thrown at my head, or something happening that I'm just like, I'm just trying to like have a Selah moment here, people. Like, <laughs> no one cares. But I still believe that the heart that God has for me is this undivided devotion to him. And so when I look at the people in my life who are single and I respect, they set an example for me to strive towards. This is what I want. I want to be able to be attentive to the presence of God in an undistracted way, even in a distracted life. Number two, there is an absence of distractions. Like I said, not all distractions, but, but the distractions, even if they're good ones, of a spouse, maybe children. Verse 32 says, I would like for you to be free from concern. And a married man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. My encouragement to you if you are single is you have, it may not be a spouse or children, but you have just as many things throwing themselves at you to distract you. Lead us. Help lead the church in choosing not to be distracted in choosing not to be divided, but having this sense of focus on God and his mission and call for your life, which leads to our third, the sense of abandonment and mission, meaning whatever God has uniquely called you to, you will go for it. Uh, a few months ago, when we got a call from some friends of ours in El Paso, Texas, saying, hey, we need help providing uh, backpacks for refugees who've just come across the border legally, but they have no supplies, Every person who responded to that was a single person. He said, send us, we'll go. We'll take time off our job. I don't need to ask anyone. Send me, I'll pay for my own way. And I was blown away by that sense of abandon for mission that they had. For those of you who are single and you have a dream to start a nonprofit, a new business, you wanna start a, a unique kind of venture, do it. Help lead the church in innovation and creativity. And for those of you who are married, I remember hearing Erwin McManus, who's a pastor in LA, one time in a seminar, he said, I've, we've chosen to never hide behind our kids when it comes to mission. It's interesting when you start involving f uh, the, the concern of family when it involves your calling and mission. When Jen and I planted the church, the very first people we invited to start Light Church was our kids. I sat down with Zoe and Jubilee and Vienna and Augustine, who was like an infant at the time, and we said... <laughs> hey, we think God wants us to start, start a church, but we're not gonna start a church unless you guys are in. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, can we get candy? It's like, sure. So, 
But there is this, this sense of our mission and calling, we couldn't just say yes, it, was, it had to be this joint effort. And for those of you who are single, there is a sense where you can lead a rhythm and a pace and an obedience to God. Say, God, whatever you want me to do. I'm not just talking about mission in a sense of like going to a third world country. I'm just saying whatever God has called you to do, say yes and do it with obedience and quickness. Because what it does is it actually helps propel the whole church forward. We need you. We need singles in the church to have a sense of abandon in their unique mission and call that God has given them in their life. Number four, those of you who are single, you have a unique opportunity to have an awareness of self that those of you who are married or even dating actually can start to lose. Because when you're in a relationship, specifically a lifelong covenant relationship, your own identity begins to be constrained within the arena of wanting to love and prefer that person. So there are things that are part of who I am that are still part of who I am, but I choose not to live out those things because it is more loving for me to prefer my wife. When you're single, you get to go to the presence of God and you get to ask the question, Lord, who have you made me to be? Who am I? No restrictions. Speak to me about my identity. Reveal to me who I am. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a really prolific philosopher, says this, now with God's help, I shall become myself. And again, for those of you who have the ability to stand in the presence of God without any sort of lens of trying to love and prefer and please someone else, but to say, God, who, who are you told me that I am? How have you uniquely wired me? It's a gift, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. That sense of authenticity is something that we need within the church. One of the one of the conversations I was having with a friend of mine this week who's walked through divorce, and I was, she was being very honest with me, which I really appreciated. And I said, I'm like, just, I'm like tell me what's this like? What's this, what's this like within the church? And she says, you know, I think one of the hardest things for me that I've had to learn is how to live with longing. And when she said that, I, it struck something in me so deep of, that is something that we don't talk about enough. How do we live with longing in our discipleship to Jesus? And again, not every single person is longing to get married. Some of people are, again, have a calling and a contentment within singleness. But there are those that are single that have a longing to be married. There are those who are married who have other longings. Everyone in this room can identify there are longings in my heart and we live with those longings. And the Bible has specific things to say. How do we wait well, right? Waiting time is not wasting time. How do we live with longing? So just a couple of quick points that I wanted to, to point out. If you are living with longing right now, number one, don't compromise. Oftentimes, longing can turn to loneliness or discontentment. And it's in those moments that there becomes a temptation that maybe I should settle for something, someone, uh, an opportunity that you know in your heart you actually deserve something better, something different. Don't compromise. Believe that your heavenly father wants to give good gifts. Secondly, don't idolize. When we live with longing, oftentimes those longings can become obsessions. 
We can begin to think about that thing. Oh, if I was just, if I just had this relationship, if I just had this position, if I could just do this thing, if my life was just like this, all of a sudden that, that fascination turns into a fantasy and turns into an obsession and we have now idolized. And if you're like, well, how do I know if this is, if this is an idol? I think one of the ways that you can understand something's an idol is how deeply it affects you emotionally. If it affects you deeper emotionally than the presence of God does, then it might be something that you need to bring before God and say, Lord, I don't know, this is a longing of mine. Longings are not bad. We are meant to live with longing. But I don't want this longing to, uh, to draw me away from the joy I can have in your presence and within the presence of your body. For those of you who are, who are long, who are single and have a longing to be married. I just want to share a couple of quotes that I, I thought were helpful this book. There's an author named Abby Smith who wrote a book called Celibate Sex on singleness. Great title. She's a professor at Biola University. And in her book, she has this quote. She says, scripture says that fulfillment, sexual or otherwise, does not come by marriage. Fulfillment comes from Christ and his body and our dependent participation through transformation in waiting, watching, and abiding in the relentless love therein. Timothy Keller says, if single Christians don't develop a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, then they will put too much pressure on their dream of marriage. So four things I'd like to leave you guys with. And again, these four things were, were birthed out of not just a study of scripture, but some really honest conversations with people in my life um, who have walked through singleness for, for years in all different facets. And this is a specific call to the church. So as a church, if we are to be a gift to the world, a redemptive force in the world, how do we love our growing single world around us? What's our role? If you're married, if you're single, what, how do we love the world around us who is actually majority single? Four things. We need to reimagine celebration, reimagine compassion, reimagine communication, and reimagine community. We're going to go through these briefly. Number one, we need to reimagine celebration. What I mean by that is so often our cultural celebrations uh, revolve around kind of different uh, stations in life that are specific to married or with children. Weddings, anniversaries, um, the, the birthday party of a small child. And I think it's important for us to realize that we need to make sure that we celebrate things like promotions, celebrate things like birthdays, Celebrate things where we gather together and you have a good cup of wine and you have good food and you bring a gift and you celebrate people that may never have those things that have become so normal within our culture. As the church, we need to learn how to reimagine how we celebrate. And so if you have a single friend, invite them into your life. And when there's something that's significant that happens in their life, celebrate it. Throw a party, right? Let's, let's be the church in that way. Number two, uh, reimagine compassion. <sighs> Sorry. One of the most moving conversations they had with this week um, was with someone who lost their spouse. And I just, I'm like, would you tell me what that's like? Being married for over almost 40 years 
than them being single. This is what she said. She said, the per- people who experience this need to take it minute by minute, day by day. Just getting through one day at a time might be all a person can do during a time of loss and loneliness. Also, it is good for the church to reach out, get to know each other, learn a little, of their, little bit of their story, meet with one another so that we might know how to reach out in love. People did that for me. My family, my children, they were the lifeline for me. And that's, that's my hope for this church, is understanding that when people in our life go through loss, if there are people who have been widowed, if there's been people who've been divorced, specifically if they've been wronged within that divorce, we need to be the church that reimagines compassion, that comes and sits with them and says, Tell, and not just says, hey, how are you doing? But actually have the time to listen to that very long answer. And feel that with them, walk with them in that. This is one of the ways that we can reach out and love a world that is predominantly single. Thirdly, we need to reimagine our communication about singleness. Um, Timothy Keller in his book gives four common quotes that we hear, singles hear, and how those are not theologically accurate. I want to read these. I think these are brilliant. First things people hear are single is, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Two, you're, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. <laughs> as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work as though God's required requires emotional martyrs to do his work of which marriage must be no part. And lastly, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. (laughs) It's the worst one. (laughs) As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. (laughs) We have to be careful. And it doesn't... And again, this is coming from my friends. It doesn't mean they don't want to be asked about their love life. And it doesn't even mean that some of them might not be interested in being set up on a date. It just means that shouldn't be the first question. It just means that should come through deep relationship, not at a surface level. Number four, we need to reimagine community. This is what I would like for us to end this morning, um, just prayerfully considering We've spent the last two weeks talking a lot about covenant and how covenant is the most sacred and safest place for a relationship because it's the only container that lets you be fully known and fully loved. But please hear me. Covenant is not only for marriage. Covenant is for the community of God. When you're sitting at your open tables during the week, you're sitting with your friends and family. Do they have the permission to be fully known and fully loved? That's covenant. We don't do open tables because we like doing small groups. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of work and things like that. We do open tables because we believe in covenant community. 
Some of my favorite stories that I hear from open tables are from people who gather around and share a meal and they're married and single, all different ages. Some have kids. Some have been widowed or divorced. And they come around a table and they laugh and share stories and they pray for one another and they share covenant community. I want to read you a, a quote from someone I, I deeply love who's, uh, who's single. She says, Our church community could become a space where singles are first asked about their interests, passions, calling. At my current church, I attend a co-ed Bible study with single people and married couples, and I'm glad my options weren't a woman's group or singles group. It feels like instead of drawing a veil between us and them, we all get to come into the presence of God together. Gosh, isn't that the church? Isn't, isn't this so vital for us to grasp? And so what I'd love to do, um, Brandon, Ashley, if you're in the room, if you guys wanna come up, we're just gonna, we're gonna end our service with positioning our hearts in such a way that the examples that single followers of Jesus can help lead us in, and that is an undivided devotion to the Lord. And that would lead us to being a community that welcomes married people, but single people would just come and just feel at home. Just, just an individual, uniquely called, gifted, built by God. And the different stations in my life do not define my identity. But that takes all of us coming back to a place of saying, Lord, we want an undivided devotion to you. So if you guys would, um, if you do me a favor, would you stand to your feet? And as you do, you can just go ahead and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna end with a song this morning. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.